0: what made you want to start um start this podcast uh where, where is your heart with uh
1: the people that are listening to it and the information you're providing okay so th- th- that's okay so the reason why i started this podcast and i will be very frank about that it's uh, purely egoistical welcome to coffee is me podcast where me means you or more precisely us This is the show where your host, Valerian, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Hey, welcome to Coffee is Me podcast. Uh, We are back again. Well, this time I have an awesome guest. Uh, His name is Joseph Stazon. Uh, I always want to pronounce it as Stazzone, which is very Italian. Welcome, Joey.
0: Thank you so much, Valerian. I appreciate it.
1: And Joey, just to clarify, you are from a company called Creole, and you guys are dealing a lot with Haitian coffee, which I'm super interested to hear about, but also with other coffees, and you are focusing on direct trade, and you have also a kind of like a, like a social mission, right? That's correct. Yeah, our company is called Cafe Creole
0: and and our primary focus is uh, working in Haiti, although we work in, uh, gosh, maybe eight or nine other origins as well.
1: Well, I don't know if you heard uh, podcasts before, but always my first question is about your first coffee, your first memory of coffee. Do you remember your first sip of coffee? Uh, Actually, yes, I do.
0: Uh, It was my father gave it to me and I was probably eight or nine years old. in my kitchen with him and you know obviously i doctored it up with a lot of sugar and cream but uh,
1: i remember the same week actually figuring out ways to bring the coffee to school with me in the morning how did you get to the coffee i i checked out some videos and for me they are fascinating your story is just insane so tell us go
0: yeah i mean i'm gonna go probably just a little bit further back than when i just first got into coffee if that's okay to kind of give a
1: bit of a backstory is that, that for you that, that's what i'm curious about yes because all the okay, backstory makes sense why you do what you do right
0: it does it, it, especially i think in this situation just because a lot of the things that were part of my previous life kind of led into this one but um you know i'll kind of keep it as brief as possible i uh well i started using drugs when i was really young i mean i was maybe 12 years old and it started out with just simple things like, um, you know, smoking weed or popping Percocet. But, uh, when I was 13, I got pretty heavily into like, uh, cocaine and selling it, uh, moved into opiates, uh, rather heavily. And by, by high school, I was, I was using heroin, uh, almost daily. Uh, so this just kind of progressed and honestly I was in and out of jail for years. Um, Until I ended up, um, you know, at the age of 20, living out in California, uh, apprenticing on a local pot farm out there, and working with some people down in Tijuana, smuggling some uh, tar heroin in. And um, at the time, we were bringing in a lot of opium as well as the the heroin, and we were converting the opium uh, to make more profit. We were also just crossbreeding weed plants up in Humboldt, so I, I kind of learned a lot from both of those, although uh, I was probably misguided with most of my intentions and everything. Um, uh, anyway, I somehow I ended up back over in Washington, D.C., which is where I live now. Uh, and uh, one day, my, my house just got raided by the police, and uh, it was maybe my ninth time going to jail, so I, I wasn't personally shake it up by going to jail nor afraid of it uh, but this time specifically I decided while I was in jail um, I, was, I was in there for a couple of years so I did have quite a bit of time to think um, I picked up a Bible off my library cart and I just started reading it and honestly a lot of things about the way I thought before uh, they changed and that kind of carried with me when I got out uh, so fast forward two years I I got out of jail and said, I'm going to go to Haiti and I'm going to serve people down there. And I, I kind of flew down to Haiti um, and that's kind of where the coffee picks up. So I didn't quite know what I was getting into at first, but I went down there just to serve people. And honestly, I was a little bit disappointed with the trip I went on. We didn't do very much. We painted some walls and um, you know, the people there have like no access to clean water. They have no food. And uh, this one day in the market, Valeria, there's this woman nearby and she was selling shoes And my team dumped out pairs of shoes for all the people to take for free because, you know, people in Haiti need our old shoes. And, um, you know, she started crying, and I went and talked to her and realized that that we just gave everyone from her town a free pair of shoes while she was trying to sell them. And she had a bank loan out where she bought used shoes that she was selling for rather cheap there anyway. And now what was she going to do? She has to go somewhere else to sell them. And she said, you're not helping. And I (laughs) – I I came home and I was really shaken up by that. So I bought a plane ticket back on my own. And I got a motorcycle there. And I just started riding through the mountains, um, finding coffee farmers. And I said, I'm going to find coffee farmers, I'm going to employ them. And, uh, you know, I didn't quite know if I was going to succeed or not, or how it was going to work, but it it ended up, uh, you know, snowballing from there
1: that's that's a that's a fascinating story and you know I hear it maybe fourth time because I checked out your videos and articles and I always love it I mean out of personal curiosity uh, when you picked up the Bible do you remember what was the maybe the first uh thought or you read that kind of initiated you to for the change yeah that's a great question um you know honestly when I first started reading
0: it I had no idea what I was reading because a lot of it just if you don't have some back knowledge, it's just like, it can be a lot of jumbled information. Right. Um, and then I, uh, I was in my cell reading and a deputy came by and said, you need to move forward a little bit and go to, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and go forward from there. So I read those and those were really important. Um, I learned about Jesus. I learned about what he taught, how he, uh, cared for us and what he wanted us to do. But then when I got to Romans, there was this book, um, to the new Testament after that, I read that humankind worships and serves things that are created instead of the creator. And oftentimes that's ourself. And when I read that, it kind of like this weight was just on me. And I knew that was me. I was like, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm my own God. I worship myself. I, I want to be in control of everything. I want to be the one that has the power in drug dealing. I want to be the one that's making decisions here. I'm above the law. It doesn't matter who I hurt because I take what I want. And it hit me that I was this person that worshipped the creation over something that created me. And I think that was my first step uh, towards understanding uh, my place here in the world and what I'm supposed to actually be doing instead of what I was doing.
1: Wow. Uh that's 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 fascinating. You know, I'm I'm coming from a Catholic family. Uh we grew up doing communism, so we didn't really practice it. But you know, uh my parents were devoted Catholics and you know, believe in God and everything. I was not baptized, so I'm you know not religious, but I believe in God. So it's 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 a kind of weird uh relation, me and God. And for me this is what you just mentioned is the core. Of everything, like we always worship us as humans, we always think we know everything, and yet, you know, we we just don't, I and mean, we cannot comprehend, you know, the universe. It's just not freaking possible. But we always have these, you know, uh, answers very fast, and oftentimes we think that this is the only way. But, you know I, I totally agree with you and you know i'm so sad when i see a lot of religious people who, who believe in god and they try to worship the god they worship themselves first place you know for me bible always like the bible because there are moral values which i like to live by so you know but i'm as i said i don't go to church or anything the other thing which i want to uh, catch on is you know you got it right when you went to haiti and well you didn't get it right but uh, I think that the lady really showed you the way because I used to work for the United Nations in Kosovo yeah. after war and uh, you know I worked with human rights and we had different little tasks and one of the tasks was a little camp which was full of uh, refugees usually they were mostly Romas, Ashkenazi and Egyptians it's a these three groups are very similar I mean, in other parts of Europe, we call them Roma, but in Kosovo at that time, they had all these three names, depending, you know, how who identified. And the UN used to provide to these guys, you know, uh, clothes, food, and everything. And after a while, we learned that they expect this. They are not even want to go out of those camps. They don't want to seek, you know, new life. They don't want to kind of like go and f- stand on their own foot because we just made them in two three years into these you know fat people and that was bad that was not the correct way to do that we couldn't we didn't even inspire them to go out and seek new lives which should be the ultimate goal right absolutely
0: and and in essence a lot of times by providing certain things that doesn't allow the person to seek that life for themselves we could actually be taking more life away from them than others. I can give you an example, um, and this is a common one I use all the time, but it's because I see it all the time, is um, people importing things to Haiti that they're growing there to feed people. Like FDA, just a couple years ago, started importing a ton of excess peanuts that we have in the United States because we subsidize them to Haiti to feed people because at least we can make use of them and then get paid for the, um, the donation, right? Well, Haiti, one of the last things that they're still growing is peanuts so we're going to sit there and take that away from these people that are trying to grow and sell peanuts by importing a ton of our excess stuff that we're subsidizing with tax dollars down there and um what's going to happen is the unemployment goes up more and more every time thankfully they caught a lot of uh flack for that because people have done it over and over again with rice and chicken and other things and they actually went back on their decision to uh bring them into Haiti uh, a couple years ago but Uh, the unemployment level is uh, over 65% there now because of things like this. So there's a lot more side effects than just taking away someone's responsibility to grow themselves because you might also be taking away people's livelihoods too.
1: Wow. Uh, So tell me a little bit more about Haitian coffee. The first time I tried Haitian coffee was in, I think, 2003, 2004, and that was last time. I remember that they used to market by X's so there was a three, triple X, five X, or whatever, you know, and we got that five X, the, the best. And I have to say it was pretty, pretty bad. So what's the situation today with coffee farming, with quality, you know, uh, which way is it going? I I appreciate you bringing that up, actually. Um, yeah, so, I
0: mean, when, I, when we first got to Haiti, I think everything we were cupping was... Scoring for us below 80, it doesn't matter where you want to put it there. I I would call it fine commercial, though, okay? I wouldn't call it, like, super defective, but I'd say the majority of things were between, like, you know, 75 to 79. Um, Currently, here in 2020, when you buy coffee from Haiti, you could be getting really really nice, uh, you know, mid to possibly upper 80s scoring coffee, or you might be getting that 75, and it really depends on where you get it from. And the uniformity of whether it's a co-op or an importer and how much involvement they have on the ground, because the quality control in Haiti has been an uphill battle. You have a lot of very small producers um, that are contributing to co-ops. And when you do that, the cooperative has to be very well organized uh, during the fermentation process and the, um, you know, just washing or drying in general uh, in order to maintain that uniformity. So that's what we really focus on in Haiti, uh, or personally myself as well. I'm, I'm very much more into the fermentations and the processing side, because I think that that's the key to the coffee there. Um, the qualities you're going to see from Haitian coffee are smooth, low acid, sweet, creamy, uh, for a light roast, we get a lot of buttery notes with like a little bit of toasted almond. Mm-hmm. Um, At more of a medium or a dark, you get your like heavy, nutty, smoky, but very uh, low in acidity and smooth uh, kind of flavors and notes out of there. Um, I don't think you're going to see Haitian coffees score 90 points. and I think that's okay. I mean, coming from someone who's a licensed grader, I think the, the scale is biased towards certain coffees over other ones. And I have a lot of people I know that prefer a Caribbean profile that's smooth, creamy, sweet, over a really bright Kenya that might score a 91 because there's a lot of acidity in it, but uh, a Haitian coffee might be an 86 and most people might actually prefer that 86 point coffee.
1: I think it's very important to uh, divide the score we give as a Q graders to a coffee, that's super important, and what people prefer. I think I told this story before. I'm sure I did because we were shocked. Uh, we, you know, I work with Unleashed Coffee, which is a Brazilian, super nice, clean, but very basic, you know, chocolate, nuts, you know, full body, low acidity. And we, we we did a San Francisco Coffee Festival where we were pouring, you know, pe- we did a small competition, like, you know, we wanted to see, uh, make people see that, that there's difference between coffees. And we are talking about, you know, coffee fest, uh, visitors, which are normal people like, you know, maybe a little enthusiast but this is not, it's not SCA event. This is basically regular people who like coffee come and check out, you know, the coffee scene. So we, we picked a geisha from, uh, Willem boots farm. Uh, I think it was Panamanian geisha. And then we had the Brazilian just, they, they really see the difference. You know what I mean? So we wanted to make two very, very, very different coffees. And so we asked them, you know, what do you think about these coffees? Uh, which one do you like better, and which one do you think is more expensive? And I would say like eighty percent people pick the Brazilian, as they like it wow. better. And I was like, what? You know, that was not our intention at all. It was not even a competition. But for me, it was a big learning uh, experience that you know, people, regular people, you know, do not care about you no know, the scores, SCA scores, you know. So I think that even Haitian coffee, if it's clean, you know, it gets up to 80s and a little bit higher has its place, you know, uh, in the world for sure. And I'm glad to hear that, you know, there's improvement. because what I had, man, it was, it was ratchet. It was not, I would, uh, well, can you score coffee lower than 70? It's very hot, hot, hard. And I was not scoring at that time, but we, we didn't sell it. I mean, we sold. Everything I could, you know, we, at that time we were buying like Honduras S H, you know, and stuff like that. Sorry, H G. So, you know, very basic coffees, but that that Haitian was, woof! I still remember but it was very bad.
0: We've had some of that too. Trust me, after working there for eight years, I've had my share of that. And you know, we usually, as long as people are willing to, we will partner with those cooperatives and do what we can to help them, mm-hmm. um, even if we can't necessarily buy it at the time. But I've I've kept some coffees that are outright um, moldy in fact we we ended up selling some of the moldy coffee to cqi so they could use it for their um uh exams and such and for trainings Uh, we sold some some labs up in vermont yeah i figured how can i make use of this coffee for these people and it wasn't very much but at least we could start getting rid of some right um and you know we do what we can to help them so we say hey you have a storage issue right here and a drying issue let's take care of this for next year right now you, you can sell this to one of your local coffee companies in Haiti or possibly the Dominican and then let's move on and let's look at next year. Uh, but yes, I, have seen quite improvements where, I mean, I've been working there eight years, so I I wouldn't be so long if I didn't see the improvements, but, um, I would say in Haiti, you're looking at a coffee that's, uh, you know, equivalent to, if not more character than a Jamaican blue mountain. Um, and it's, I think doing a lot more, uh, good in the world by creating sustainable growth and
1: employment in a country that really needs it. Do you think that the Haitian coffees or Haitian producers are inspired by way anyway, by the Dominican Republic?
0: I think that, um, I don't think that there's enough communication for the two between them uh, to kind of inspire that, to be honest with you. I do see, um, and this is really funny because I actually work in the Dominican as well. We do some really nice honey process out of there, uh, totally different profile than the other side. But I actually see a lot of Haitian farmers um, that don't want to sell to the cooperatives. They go to the border if they need money right away, and they sell to Dominicans that are coming over to buy their cherries. And you're not going to believe this, but I see some co-ops in Haiti going over to the border and buying cherries from Dominican farmers and bringing it back. So it's funny that I... I see them both doing it and they both make that claim like oh yeah the Haitians buy our coffee you know the Dominicans buy our coffee but it's like I literally watch them both do it actually it's it's quite strange um however there is a lot of racial tension and uh, I don't think that there's a ton of cooperation and communication for the most part between the businesses uh there on the island
1: that's super interesting I did not know that uh tension uh well you said that uh they're buying cherries so it means that they buy the cherry and then they use it as haitian coffee or vice versa yes okay exactly so a lot of the national
0: brands that you might see down there um they they originate in that country uh you know they have a high demand and so they'll go out and buy as many as they can
1: okay that's super funny because that's what happened with the french wine i think in uh, end of 19th and beginning of 20th century that, you know, they produce a lot of wine in Morocco and Tunisia and brought it in and sold it as French wine. <laughs> so it's...
0: But I the guess that it, it
1: goes both ways. It's kind of cool. you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is. It is really interesting. Yeah, I, I can't seem to make sense of it sometimes. I mean, but that's what they're doing. I guess it just depends on the cash flow of people at certain times and what they need. Right.
1: Mm. okay cool because you know for french it was more and uh, the prestige that they could not produce enough of the french wine and bordeaux was the one of the guys who were super guilty in this so selling you know uh, buying super cheap wine from you know north african countries and selling them for a lot of money as a bordeaux you know was a trick which uh they used. but in this case there is no such a trick right because if it goes both ways it just Basically, I guess, you know, depending how much they can sell and if they need to amend, they just buy it from the from the neighboring country. Right. Exactly. And and we're talking about usually,
0: I mean, unsorted, um, probably less kept fine commercial coffee that they're selling in country.
1: You want to sell this coffee United States, right? And you have the social mission. You know, How do you use that in order to do better sales in the United States? Do you work with nonprofits who help you out? Uh, do you talk about the social mission and the grocery stores pick up the story right away? Or how, how does this really work in the United States?
0: Yeah, I'm going to be honest
1: with you. I think people love our story. I don't think that
0: ever pushes people to buy our product. Or I think it's a nice add-on for them. But the way that... The way that I view it, and this is how I've seen it before, is that most people will not spend $15 on a bag of coffee unless they like the coffee. I mean, it's nice that we're doing good things for people, but they want to buy a nice bag of coffee for, you know, $10, 15 $20, whatever they're spending. Uh, so I do find that me being able to explain, hey, we are employing. 2,500 producers in Haiti. Hey, we developed this fermentation in the Dominican ourselves, and it's super fruity. Things that have this story that grips people might help us to get on the shelf or, um, you know, to get into a business. But our, honestly, we just started putting information on in our bags about what we're doing because uh, up until this point, people have just been buying it because they really like the coffee. Um, you know, we do samplings occasionally, telling people about it and things like that, but. Uh, yeah, up until this year, we weren't even uh, putting uh, too much information on the packaging. Even
1: wow, uh, I guess that's a uh, information which is super important to hear for everyone because that's our experience with Unleash Coffee. You know, our we don't have a, such a strong social mission as you guys, but our mission was simple: that buy from a farmer. So Unleash Coffee is basically a company between me yeah. and a Brazilian farmer, and we thought that. That's our strongest point, right, that we go to um, companies and explain, look, you know, this is much stronger than fair trade. This is basically buying it from the farmer, you know, from the producer and why they love the story and they cheer you up. That wasn't the reason why they would buy, you know, so it was. Sometimes it's kind of open doors, but you really have to come in with a coffee and with sales, with grocery stores. You know, grocery stores want your sales. If they don't get the sales, they don't order that from you anymore, right? Exactly. Yeah, so. So you yeah. found the same thing? Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, you know, we, basically what we found our main, you know, thing is the espresso because Brazilian coffees are, I think, superior on espresso, you know, beautiful, creamy body. I mean, crema like on a, you know, like on a beer, you know, it's and. and because I I'm European, I like this European profile. For me, you know, Brazil's are super important in espresso blends. You know, so um, we have one café who you know got better offers, and they just keep refusing them because they said we just want this coffee. We want to make sure that our coffee behaves like this, and it's so creamy, <laughs> so smooth. You know, so they they really enjoy that.
0: That's beautiful. I think that that's really good advice for everyone to realize is that you know the story helps and. You know, the United States, I think we have an interesting advantage to be able to sell a story, essentially. I don't think that that exists in a lot of other places, or maybe it's starting to. uh, But I think here specifically, you can sell a story with your product, right? People want that. However, that's really not going to be the deciding factor in a purchase. And I would honestly say that's also not sustainable if that is the deciding factor, because you might buy some bread because, you know, this guy went to prison for murder for making it. But if you don't like the bread, you're not gonna buy it again and so you're not running a sustainable company
1: <laughs> no no, it's totally true totally true uh that said you know you have one video which uh kind of disappear i, I didn't find it on your website but by the way i post these videos in the show notes so people uh, can go to Coffee is me website and to this episode i'll sh- uh, put those videos there and it's, it's super funky uh video because it was made kind of professional's mindset but has a little amateurish feeling and I love that. but it feels very real to me. Uh, is the one where you pick up the phone in the beginning, and you know you basically tell your tell your life story, right? You know, which I yeah, you want to yeah. I do. Yes. So, why did you? I mean, I, I couldn't find it on your website. Why did you decide not to use it?
0: Uh, we have a more simple one on our website because I think people's attention span is not normally 13 minutes long, unfortunately. Uh, So we have a shorter two-minute one that kind of just tells a little bit about what we're doing, but I I actually really like that uh, specific one that you're mentioning as well. You know, it's an interesting story how that one happened. Uh, A kid at my church that was in college came up to me and was like, hey, you have a pretty cool job. Do you mind if I like kind of follow you with a camera for my project? And I was like, sure. I I don't think he had any idea what he was getting into because he came to my house first. And that was when we were working out of my home, Valerie. We hadn't even opened our roastery or our warehouse yet. Um, so he was in my house videotaping us, and then we got a call and we had to fly down to, um, I want to say Honduras. And I was like, You should just come with me, and he did. And then we ended up having to drive to Nicaragua from there. And as soon as we got back, like two days later, I was like, I know you probably can't leave again right away, but I think you need to come down to Haiti with me because I have to go there. So he he got a lot more, uh, bit off than he could chew. And I think he really enjoyed it, and he did a fantastic job. Uh, with that video. is his college project.
1: Okay, Joey. Um, let's talk about the operation. Um, you guys, uh, have your warehouse and your roaster. What are you roasting on right now?
0: Yeah, we have a 15 kilo Turk oh. and we also have a 30 kilo mill city. Okay. Uh, which one yeah. you love more? <laughs> That's a good question. They're different. Uh, they're very different. So, um, the Ozturk is a little workhorse, and um, you really you lose a lot of control on it with certain things. Um, meaning, uh, my lighter, fruitier roasts, I think, are especially hard. Uh, we were able to kind of, you know, rig our machine to do what we want with our charge temp and uh, batch size and things like that. But uh, and we even expanded our solenoid with a larger spring to get more flames out of it uh definitely not sure how safe that was but it made really good coffee um (laughs) but the the mill city has more capability um and i think uh, it could be slightly less consistent to the larger batch um i i like Both for different reasons, and I think with any roaster, uh, just from what I've seen so far, you always have your little quirks you have to work through, right? And um, I think they both have that. Yeah, I I do enjoy the capability on my Mill City um, a lot, though. I like being able to really make that graph kind of uh, turn a corner uh, on a dime, you know?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you guys roasted on other rosters too, correct? Right? Because i seen your Instagram and I've seen some loring there in the background. Was, was it you guys or were you just visiting somebody?
0: Uh, we were just visiting at one point, but I, uh, I have been on a Joper before too.
1: Okay. That's a Jopper is a Portuguese, uh, probat copy, right? It is. Yeah. So exactly. how did you enjoy that one and comp- so okay here's a question so why didn't you go with you know because these roasters which you mentioned the oster which is a turkish mm-hmm. roaster and mill city which is um chinese roster remanufactured into better specs i guess in united states as far as i understand uh these are all budget roasters why didn't you didn't go with something like pro bad chopper or Giesen or loring <laughs>
0: Yeah, great question. Um, I I think the Aero Roasters were just a little bit out of the question for us. Not that there's anything wrong with them. That's not our style. Uh, So we were direct playing on the drum for sure. So Um, that's loading out,
1: okay? Yeah, that
0: leaves that one out. Um, You know, I found uh, my preference was not the infrared on the D-Drix, And uh, honestly, the Ozturk just kind of happened because I, I didn't own a roastery at the time. I, I started out importing, uh, Larry, and, You know, we were importing for uh, years before we started roasting. Well, um, a roaster down the street from me was going out of business, actually, right around, um, you know, my third or fourth year in business. And I was looking at buying a roaster at the time, and he had an Ozturk already installed. So that kind of happened by default. I just fell into that. Uh, I do think I enjoyed it. I, I find the roast similar to a Dietrich to be honest with you even though it is a budget roaster you probably have to work a little bit harder <laughs> while you're roasting it but uh it does a good job um i think the mill city although it's a budget roaster i, I honestly believe it has more capability than some of the uh higher cost roasters that i've seen mm-hmm. yeah aside from maybe probat is is really on point geese as well but those are uh significantly higher costs uh, for if you ask me some of the same capability
1: no, i'm just curious because you know if you would ask me today let's say i starting a new company and what roster i pick i really don't know man i would have a very hard time i roast a lot on Giesen, and there are certain issues with the Giesen which i i just don't understand how can they design a roster like that you know for that much money i love the profile the profile i think what I get from Geeson is beautiful. It's my favorite, for sure. Yes. But it has to be a production roster. You cannot have just a you know, a thirty-five k roster, which is six kilo per batch, but thirty-five thousand dollars or whatever it costs, you know, and not doing a full day production on that, you know. So my main issue with that right now is that the chaff gets set on fire. I almost set the the whole lab on fire recently because of the stupid, you know, collecting the chaff under the the uh, cooling tray, you know, you have to vacuum that out. And if you do a bigger production of Sun-Dried Naturals, you have to vacuum it during the production. And I said, the vacuum on fire. I'm not sure if, you know, how many people, to how many people this happened. especially if you have a smaller roaster and you kind of vacuum out the chaff and you don't pay attention that there's a little, like, amber, you know, air and amber, boy, that's just like, poof. So, you know, that is a little quirks, which I hate on geese but you know, there's also yeah. the, the lowering which I, you know, again on the other hand, I love the production uh, of it, like how it does you have easy it is to do a good production on it. But you know, sometimes I'm not in love with profile, so you know, I don't know if I would have to pick today roster, I would have very very hard time, you know, because more you know about these guys, more you roast, you always kind of like, okay, this one has this, this one has that, so which one to pick, right? So. They're all going to have those, yeah, they're all going to have their quirks. They're all going to
0: have their things that really excite you, I think. Um, yeah. While some people would say the luring is more clean, um, you know, it could also be a little bit more like two-dimensional with certain things. So I think those are both true statements. It does make really clean roasts, and then sometimes you don't get the same complexity that you do out of a drum. So it's a give or take, right? And I think you kind of experience that for all of them. Um, one of the quirks on our Mill City was that the, the trier, only pulled out about three grams of coffee at a time well i i don't know how i'm going to profile coffee when i can only pull out three two, three grams every time i'm profiling something so i actually just had one custom made where i could pull out as much as i wanted uh we did some testing and we sent it off to someone and now we can pull out 15 grams for uh that specific temperature which helps a lot
1: yeah you know we use in europe on my european company we use also uh we used guarantees, which are basically Turkish roasters similar to Osturk And our first guarantee was a three kilo I still we have a three kilo roaster. And I mean, that's a workhorse. That's it's like we abuse it so much, man, so much. And it just just keeps giving Then we had a bigger one 15 kilo, which wasn't that great. I mean, it was still fine. But at some point, the the uh, the Paint melted, <laughs> which was like, hey, to say, to be frank, or uh, sorry, guarantee, exchange it. We, you know, they asked us to do some pictures and apologize and exchange it. So that was really cool. And you know, sending stuff from Turkey to European Union, it's not easy. You know, so kudos to them. So that was really cool of them. And then we had to upgrade, so we got these uh, also in in our lap, a UG22 Probat UG22. And that's a beauty, but you know, we had to change the burners. We had to do some repairs on it because it was made in 1960. So, but that is an amazing roast production roaster. You know? A bit loud with all the belts and stuff, but it's a beautiful production roaster.
0: It sounds like you've been on quite a few. Oh, so I know that you said you can't pick which one you'd get next, but what do you think?
1: Could you say which one's your favorite? Uh, <clears throat> oh boy. For production is definitely the loring to make a lot of coffee short time efficiently for flavor and fun I actually prefer my very first roaster which was a probat LG 3 which was made in 1938 and my dad's still roasting on it by the way uh, it's still yeah. in Europe, but I want to bring it here. And because the only thing which I hated on it were the burners and how you ignite the burners. It was a very like old stylish thing. You had to light a pilot and then you turn on the burners and mm-hmm. something happened. And if you put too much gas in it and it's like, Poof! but anything after that, it, it was great profile. I loved it. So I would, you know, once my dad finishes roasting, I want to bring it to United States and just change the burners a little bit, you know, give it some love, maybe adjust a little bit the airflow. And I think it will be a beautiful roaster. I think that would be my favorite. Yeah, but it's only a three kilo, So it's just you know, having fun, not really production roasting. But if I would have to buy one and I had like no limit, like I could spend as much as I can. I might investigate, you know, somebody make remaking the ProBat UG 22 copies. And I forgot the company. So they're making ProBat UG 22 copies. And I would investigate that, you know, I don't know how much they cost, but I would probably think of that as a good production roaster. There's a lot of listeners here who, you know, are crazy enough and thinking to start a coffee company and you, you did it and you probably uh, did some awesome decisions and some crappy decisions. So I want to, in a first, I want to hear your top three decisions you think you did right and you maybe recommend other people, you know, explore them or do the same. (laughs)
0: <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I'm not sure how much of a place I am to say what, what I've done right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. I think, I think one of the most important things is to just move, right? Get things done. And you, you can't think about how much stuff you have to get done because when you're starting, there is a lot. Um, I think jumping is the most important advice to give anyone that's starting You'll figure out, if you're an entrepreneur, you'll figure out problem solving every time it comes, because that's not going to stop once you're no longer a startup. That same problem solving is going to uh, extend for the life of owning a business. So you start and then nothing will work the way you want it to. And you're going to have to fix that. And that's that's the best thing I can say that we did and still do, I think, today. Um Gosh, I took uh, as many opportunities as I could to learn from people that were doing well. I think uh, a lot of people don't realize sometimes how much information there is that is uh, free information. People love to give you information, especially if they're good at something. They want to share that. A lot of times people really enjoy sharing things like that. Uh, When I started my company, I went to... Uh, some estates over in Costa Rica and just learned as much as I could about how they were doing their different processing techniques. Um, you can call people on the phone that are starting companies. Hey, I don't know you, but, or they're running successful companies. I, I don't know you, but I'm doing this and this. Uh, I'm in no way competition to you or way over here. Could, could you tell me a little bit about your experience with this? And I think a lot of times you'd be surprised with how much people are willing to give. Um, well, we did that quite a bit. And I think it saved us from making a lot of mistakes that other people had already made. Um, so being humble and listening to others' advice and learning wherever you could take uh, the opportunity is, is recommended. Um,
1: yeah, I think, uh, I don't know if I can think of a third one for you. That's okay. I can tell right. you. That's cool. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it just, uh, it, it can be three, it can be 10, it can be one very strong one. So that, that's cool. So do you remember yeah. your uh, X amount of biggest mistakes you did and, you know, people should be just aware of them or careful about that.
0: Yeah, uh, if you're importing, you know, uh, cash against documents is is good and everything, which is a method of bringing things in uh, where you don't wire the money until the coffee's at your port at least you've guaranteed the product arrives. But, um, you know, I think seven years ago we had some huge losses because, uh, people sent containers of coffee here that wasn't the same coffee and there wasn't even feasible for us to sell. Uh, obviously we didn't partner with those people again, but uh, my recommendation is start small with people, people who you can trust with smaller things. You can usually trust with larger things there's no need to rush uh when there's a lot of money on the line unless you really want to Uh, but for me i've learned when i'm picking up a new supplier overseas i will um you know maybe buy 40 sacks off of them 30 sacks and and yeah my shipping costs a lot and it's not very efficient but i found that the people who are going to rob you will rob you when they're only doing 20 sacks uh they don't have the long-term vision to rob you when you're coming in and buying 600 sacks they're not going to wait so you know you can get out of the way early and you, you realize you can trust and then uh be as involved as you'd like to um bring in from them next year and the year after and hopefully grow that i think um i have a bit of advice that blur and you can correct me if it's uh doesn't fit here but this doesn't necessarily pertain to just success of starting a business but you know direct trade is so big right now i just, just feel compelled to say something about it Um, a lot of people are moving towards this like oh i carry one coffee that's direct trade or i carry three now or i carry all my coffees direct trade and i think uh, i have a problem with uh the fact that nobody really says what that means um if it means that we're just buying coffee from a farmer i'm i'm not super content with that being any better than fair trade unless the farmer is making more money and if so can we see that they're making more money Um, and can we see that it's sustainable? Um, And I think that, you know, it's nice if you're buying coffee from your local uh, Guatemalan guy that lives in your area and he's bringing in micro lots from his family or whatever the case may be. And I think it makes a neat story sometimes to say, yeah, cool. I flew to Haiti and I rode around in the mountains on a motorcycle and picked up coffee from these farmers. If my farmers aren't making enough to live off of that, that's just a cool story, and we're, again, exploiting people in poverty for the, the sake of a luxury product like coffee, um, which I, I think most of us would be against. And so if we are against that, and I think that's up to everyone if they'd like to be or not, I think asking the question, how much does the farmer make, is, is really important. Um, and that transparency has to exist on some level uh, for direct trade coffees. Otherwise, I don't think that there's a benefit to Buying direct trade over anything else. In fact, um, you know, it could be equally or more harmful sometimes.
1: You know, I totally agree with you. And I know I'll make a lot of people angry with this. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm old, so I can do that. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, the thing is, I got disillusioned a lot uh, recently in, in many things, you know, in United States being, you know, and stuff like that. But one thing was the direct trade. You know, because there's a lot of companies who brag about that. And cool, okay. But it's not regulated, which I don't like regulations anyway, but there's not enough transparency in it. And people sometimes are dumb enough to just be happy with the information direct trade. I totally agree with you. I think the direct trade requires transparency because you are declaring something, right? And you can do direct trade for different reasons. You don't have to do it for, you know, being sustainable and help the farmers. You can do it for other reasons but be transparent about that and me a consumer can decide that yeah I want a direct trade coffee which does not really care about the farmers well-being but bring, brings me a good coffee for nine bucks if it's something for you and that's what you wanna live with go for it but it's not the case because many times the direct trade is used with connotation that it is somehow socially helping the farmer and that's why we started on niche coffee by the way because my totally naive thought was that maybe it will inspire some other people to do the same because in Amish coffee the farmer is half owner of the company okay it's much beyond you know direct rates so the farmer it's not that we are bringing coffee from brazil the owner and the ceo actually in this company is the farmer you know so it's it's a model which could totally work and make farmers sustainable because the main issue here is that you know uh, if and again, I'm going back to this um, uh, gorilla company from Uganda. We discussed this too. It's a dis- interesting discussion that they were thinking that they were going to produce the coffee in Uganda, which is would be great because you can create more jobs. But unfortunately, you could not sell that coffee very well in the northern hemisphere because now we really require freshness. We really want a fresh coffee. So and that's why I told her that look, the model of unleashed coffee is pretty cool because the farmer is half owner and we still roast it in the northern hemisphere and ship it right away so that people get the fresh coffees. you know it's interesting. But I don't think there's another company like this, you know? I don't think we inspired anyone to be honest. So yeah, I, in, if you are honest about your price in direct trade, that's really cool. So let's talk about it. How much do you pay to your farmers?
0: That's a great question, thank you. you know what? <laughs> Two things really quick. Uh, I give lectures on this at Coffee Fest, and I will sit there and say all those things, and then people will just come buy my coffee from me at my booth afterwards without asking me any of the questions that I recommended that they ask people, uh-huh. <laughs> um, which I find a little bit frustrating. Uh, second is, you know, by making this amazing business model that was direct trade that you did, uh, which that is quite amazing, by the way, um, I'm very impressed that actually might allow other people to fake it even more because then all they have to do is come in and say things like, Hey, we're direct trade. And then suddenly they almost get as much credit as you do, to be honest. Right. If not, yeah, for sure. People don't take the time to research more. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, so our producers are usually on the lower end. Uh, they might be making $3 a pound uh, on the higher end. They might be up to like five eighty 80 or so. And you know, some of those farmers, as well. Um, it's kind of complicated with transparency, right? But you have to factor in things like uh, we pay for their organic inspection every year. We also fly someone in to do that. We ship grain pro bags there. So some farmers and co-ops are not capable of doing those things. And we want to help them with the uh, you know agreement that maybe in three years, that 580 price point will come down to, let's say, Four ninety-five, and they'll be taking care of those things themselves, or whatever that proportion is of extra cost that really should be on the cooperative sustainably, right? Otherwise, they can only really sell to one person if that person's paying for everything for them, and then they'd be locked into us, right? What if we go out of business? That's not sustainable. Um, so uh, I believe that those are very fair ranges of price per pound for the coffees we do. Uh, you know, some of the coffees. I see that are selling for down at a dollar fifty a pound. I, I've watched farmers not be able to um, even afford. They're losing money basically year after year. So they're they're working year round growing coffee, um, and they're actually losing money on their farm. Uh, uh, there was a recent study in Colombia I'd like to bring up that I believe it said that the average farmer in Colombia, if they were making two thirty a pound or something, they were just breaking even. For the year, and I want to say there. Um, and again, this is averaging a lot of producers, but I think it's an important metric to have. Uh, if the producers were making two fifty, they weren't even like able to profit. And if they were making two eighty, they could reinvest in their farms, which is important for a business to do. Otherwise, they're paycheck to paycheck, right? Um, Go ahead. Sorry. No. Yeah, I, just, I I thought that was a really interesting study, and I thought that it's important for us to know that that that's the case those are real numbers those are real people
1: yeah it's not only that you want to reinvest in your farm you want to make a decent living I mean farming is a super hard job so why would the farmer not de- deserve a luxury lifestyle you know why not I mean I know it's a very yeah uh, kind of like naive thinking but it's a super hard job, you know, and coffee is not subsidized the same way as in United States, you have corn or soy or whatever, you know, uh, it's it's a it's it's a it's a crop, which, you know, coming from a like a third world countries right now, you know, mostly. And we somehow expect that, you know, it should be cheap. And we somehow expect that, you know, we should pay a little bit for it. And I don't know, it's, it's a it's a super weird world. And yet, you know, so here is a good example of you know what, I kind of hate about the direct trade. By the way, the Unish coffee model, we don't call direct trade at all. We just call it you buying it from a farmer. You know, that's it because that's what you do you're buying it from the farmer. We farm. register our coffees on a website.
0: It's called transparenttradecoffee.org. It was done by a couple of ap- academics at Emory University. Uh, Peter Roberts is spearheading it. And, um, Basically, they explain uh, either farm gate or FOB price for roasters that want to register and want to be transparent about their coffees. Then they also proportionally uh, do a return to origin percentage, which is kind of what you're saying is um, the farmer should share on some level in that price. And that's that's what Peter Roberts would say, too. Is And I agree with him completely. If uh, French wine was being sold for fifty dollars that vineyard is making a good amount of money they're not getting paid pennies for that bottle right um right but the farmer in that industry which is actually quite similar to coffee is very well respected that they would come up with and process something like that and you know it's a little bit more complex as coffee has roasters as well to have to develop a profile and sometimes there's fermentations and processing centers that do a lot of the work too but Everyone in the chain should be respected the same way. So, TransparentTradeCoffee.org will show the percentage of return to origin, uh, which I think is really important. It's it's important that that's not a, you know, two percent. I mean, if the farmer makes three dollars a pound, that matters a lot less if you're selling the coffee here for sixty dollars, right? Because <laughs> that, that three right. dollars isn't very much anymore, right? Um, but if that's a twelve ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine bag, that three dollars or three fifty might be uh, quite a bit.
1: Yeah, you know, I wanted to go back to the uh, to the direct trade as as, as as a term, you know, and it's there's no real definition to it, you know, how much you should pay or no rules or regulation. It's all just means that you go and buy the coffee directly from the farmer, right? So, you know, the the similar similar uh, certificate which kind of makes me angry is, is is organic, and I'm leaving fair trade out right now because I don't want to talk about it. But the organic, which you know, supposed <laughs> to kind of give you. Uh, like a like a security of buying a healthy product, right, and I'm going to the wine world now a little bit, and it's super interesting that in wine or actually in everything, organic certificate or organic in seventies and eighties meant totally different what we have now, because as soon as something becomes popular, people <laughs> hop on it and big corporations hop on it and then they start to bend the rules and they start to add to the rules and suddenly a 70s 80s organic movement becomes just a product like any else you know any other just a little bit less chemicals a little bit less of that a good example of this would be californian wine and boy i hope no wine makers are listening to this like i get always like when somebody tells me that Oh, and when you ask a, a California wine grower, like or grape grower, hey, man, how do you grow your grapes? So there's a few answers. You can say conventionally, that's actually for me, the favorite, because I know that he sprays, I know he uses herbicides. I know what, exactly what's happening there. And there's the term called sustainably. And you go like, what the F that means? Oh, that all that it means just, to you know, is that they don't use herbicides and everything else is up to whatever. And there is organic, which means they own organic certificate. Which again, organic certificate means that you have to, you know, do some organic um, farming. You can use chemicals, certain chemicals, you know, which I would never use in my, you know, vineyard. But you can use them. There's a, a timing. Where how can you use them? And it, they're still marked as organic. And now, if you go towards, let's say, to winemaking, you know, fermentation and stuff, you know, the. There's so much complexity in it. So all these terms mean really nothing, you know. It you really have to, like a consumer, <laughs> you have to go to the core level and ask basic questions. Like I I ask you, like, okay, for me it's important that you pay your farmers right. I have to ask you how much you paid for your farmers. If you say to me that, you know, I sell organic coffee, I have to ask you okay, what chemicals do you use, you know? And obviously you have to be knowledgeable about these chemicals because some chemicals are not that harmful and some chemicals you just don't wanna to even touch. Good example, Roundup, right? The wheat killers. So then a consumer has to be so freaking knowledgeable about everything in order to make decision. It's super hard. So I'm, as you can see, I'm already getting frustrated about the whole system, you know? And yeah, I, you know, all these certificates and names just really can mean nothing. You really have to go and ask how it's made,
0: right? They they do mean nothing uh, a lot of the time, unfortunately. I I think that the certificates, um, I honestly believe that they're made with good intentions and then people use, they use them uh, to manipulate buyers into getting a feeling without having to do research and then consumers will, um, be unknowingly supporting products that they actually disagree with. A couple examples are uh, like you said, organic, which while there's no, um, you know, unnatural chemicals, uh, being put into the land, for example, right. Or the plant, uh, you, that doesn't mean you're not cutting everything down and growing coffee, for example, with, uh, complete disregard for the land where the soil is going to be deteriorated and then in five years you actually do have to start putting chemicals in it because uh you know you've completely demolished everything for the sake of growing the coffee so some organic products like that might be quite on the path to to, um you know destroying the land where it does need chemicals and then it can no longer be organic or rainforest alliance which allows people to um become certified for the first couple years without actually having all of their things taken care of so that That allows a buyer like me to just have someone start the process. I'm buying Rainforest Alliance certified coffee and then next year I can get it from someone else and next year from someone else and I never actually have to be doing anything uh, that I'm supposed to, right? Or uh, honestly, one of the things we're moving towards and people here don't really know about it, maybe you can comment if they know more in Europe, I know it's larger in Italy, uh, is biodynamic. Uh, So we've been working more with regenerative farming um, where you respect the soil and you do different things, uh, including biodiversity and uh, basically putting different funguses in the soil that regenerate it. And it's, it's a whole idea of, like, organic being the baseline. There's no chemicals, but that's a really low minimum already. Um, we are also making sure that growing the coffee doesn't harm the environment around it. It's working with it. And by doing so, the soil is so amazingly healthy in the places that we do this biodynamic farming that – uh, the coffee just tastes better, uh, which you know is quite expected when the soil is more healthy.
1: Yeah, I think the soil is the soil is everything, and you know you can talk about coffee, wine, whatever uh, crops. Uh, soil is everything, and again, going to the very first conversation when we talked about you know your religion and and God and the fact that we worship. Uh, more creation than the creator, right, is we always want to fix things in our way rather than let the nature take the course. And, you know, biodynamic is very popular in, in, in the wine world. And again, it's, it's getting hijacked. I can see it's getting hijacked. You know, biodynamic is actually a, a super funky, crazy idea. Some of the things, sound to me, crazy, like, you know, you have to do certain things in your vineyard or in your farm, according to the moon's, you know, uh, constellations or how, how the moon is. And in some ways to make uh, make sense, because, you know, let's say in fermentation, you work with tiny particles and the gravity and, and the uh, moon and the gravity does influence how these particle works. How much that's questionable, but it's a funky idea. And usually biodynamic wines are beating any other wines. So there must be something in it, you know. But um, you know, I I really recommend to explore one book by um, a guy called Fukuyoka, uh, "One Straw Revolution," and you know, if you don't want to pay money for it, cool, you can go to Hoopla. Hoopla is if you are a library member anywhere in the United States, Hoopla is your app where you can get free uh, audiobooks, books, and and videos like movies and stuff. So I think. It is an audiobook by Fukuyoka One Straw Revolution. And that explains a lot about soil. Like, it's uh, written by a person who farmed in the beginning of uh, 20th century in Japan and all the way, I think, to... Actually, no, he was farming, like, a little bit before... He started before the war, the Second World War, and all the way to maybe 90s or something. I, I forgot. But the point is... How he approached the soil health, and it's written with a peasant's perspective. So this is not a scientific thing. It's just from a peasant's perspective. And what I like on I always call it a peasant brain is the logic of being connected with the nature, the logic of being connected with the world you work in. because you know once you hop on a big tractor and just plow up your you know way out, you know, you are disconnected. You, you're getting more and more disconnected. More machinery you put in, and you know, I'm not again. I'm not against progress. Don't misunderstand me. I think that's super important. But the disconnection part, is, which which bothers me, that we don't stay connected. You know. So and and even those fungi, which I mentioned at the beginning, it's like it's a world which we don't know too much about, and yet it's so freaking important for the soil, for a healthy plant, and and you know, for a great is. coffee or wine.
0: I, I agree, and and you're right about that connection too. Um, the further that you're removed from it, the further that you're going to see it. It's not in your forefront of your mind. You worry about it less. You care about it less, and then it, it's going to affect, um, you know. I guess how much of part of your uh,
1: actual farming is actual farming, right? Right, right. That and. I don't know. You know, again, I'm not against progress and I'm not against science. I think these are super important. But those are things which we kind of like discover. But giving it back to, the, if we, especially we work with agriculture, giving it back with a respect. That's what we don't do. You know, we start to worship our ego as humans, as a human being, that we are the top of the the chain, and we just freaking destroy everything all the time. You know, so it's like it it, it bothers me a lot. I don't know. I, I'm starting my own wine wine. Uh, uh, like a winery, growing grapes primarily uh, at this point, and you know I'm I'm reading a lot about healthy soils and how we approach these kind of things, and I'm just fascinated by these guys like Fukuyoka, who you know like devoted his life to simplicity and understanding and respecting his soil. All right, enough of rant about soils. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for that. but, but you, you hit my you hit my point, which I'm kind of super sensitive. And, and I just love to talk about that. All right. Um, you know, I love to ask this question, uh, and I think people love the answers to it. If uh, you wouldn't have your company today and I would give you ten thousand dollars and tell you, hey, Joey, start something awesome in a coffee industry, uh, which way would you go? yeah um you know
0: i actually think i might do this anyway so i'll go ahead and say it and i hope i have more than ten thousand dollars when i do start it but um i have always really because my job itself um you know i own a direct trade uh coffee company and coffee roastery that uh works with producers is specifically my job is more on the processing and fermentation side. Like I mentioned, I honestly feel like starting a processing facility and um, as well as some microlots um, would be an ideal dream job for myself. Um, I imagine when I retire, it's going to be somewhere in Latin America uh, with that. Exactly. Uh, with a nice farm with some solid microlots of different varietals that are well-separated, well-cared for, uh, well-processed and doing really fun anaerobics and um, possibly different yeast fermentations and things like that so i, I honestly think i would be on the, the production side at origin or maybe processing
1: that's awesome that's really cool uh i don't know maybe ten thousand dollars can make it happen or not but uh maybe i mean I think I can imagine that the lands in Central America are pretty cheap. So, uh, cool. Yeah, All right. It would be uh, a start. Yeah. <laughs> do you have any question for me? Gosh, you know, what made you want to start, um,
0: start this podcast? Uh, where, where is your heart with, uh, the people that are listening to it and the information you're providing?
1: Okay. So th- th- that's okay. So the reason why I started this podcast, and I will be very frank about that. It's uh, purely egoistical. You know, I was starting on niche coffee, and I wanted to uh, get information from people who are smarter than me. <clears throat> so I asked them, you know, whether they want to be part of it. Okay. And I was, as you said, as your experience is that people love to share their stories, people love to share their know how. So that's why I did it. And did. I that- Sorry,
0: no, yeah, you're right.
1: You're right. hundred percent. Yeah. So uh, that's how I started. But then, you know, as a pro- pro- uh, podcast progress and I met people who are listening to this and they come to you and they say, hey, man, you know, I'm listening to your podcast. And because of your podcast, I started my own coffee company doing X, Y, Z first of all, always ask them, uh, are you sorry that you started your coffee company? <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 we just, you know, we just love what we do. And that's great, man. That's that really fills me. And that feels so awesome that you can do that little change, which I didn't even expect. So a lot of people are kind of following their dreams because they learn from guys like you. You know, I interview because, to be honest, I mostly interview people. Well, sometimes I share some wisdom from my world, but mostly you guys share this knowledge and people are just super appreciative, so thanks.
0: I think that's really exciting. And I think that's really useful for a lot of people to be able to gain that, so that's why I was asking.
1: All right, Joey, thank you so much for being here, but now I want to know where uh, people can find you, and you know, tell us especially, you know, because there's a lot of people starting coffee business or already having coffee business, where can they buy your green coffee, and what's an offer?
0: Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. We um, we store uh, coffee at Continental Terminals in Jersey City, uh, at Costa Oro in Portland, Theta uh, Ridge, and uh, at our own facility in Virginia as well. And uh, we carry five or six different types of Haitian coffee. Uh, we have some that is certified uh, sort of organic, although um, you know it is all actually organically and as we discussed already that doesn't mean everything um but we have five different types of Haitian coffee including just 100 percent Arabica Blue Mountain coming out of there we have five or six types of Dominican coffee including uh anaerobic naturals and some red honey process um and we do a few different types of Bolivian coffee uh from indigenous people we work with down there uh so you know you can contact us directly on our website if you'd like to get more information about the green coffee, um, and we can get some shipping quotes to you. And uh, yeah, like I mentioned, we have it stored in different parts of the country, so.
1: Awesome, when you talked about Arabica Blue Mountain, you're talking about the varietal, not the Jamaican uh, Blue Mountain, right? That's, that's
0: correct. And the varietal is named after, obviously, Jamaican Blue Mountain, but Jamaican Blue is just a trademark of Arabica Blue Mountain that's grown in Jamaica and registered. So this varietal is, um, grown all over Haiti. Uh, In fact, that's mostly what you see coming out of Haiti, and it's a really close uh, plant to the Typica plant. You'll see it also in a little bit in Kenya, Papua New Guinea, and Cameroon.
1: Awesome. Well, Joey, good luck to you. Uh, You guys are doing a great job, and it was fun to talk to you. Have a good one.
0: All right, thanks so much
1: for having us, and I appreciate it, Blair, you too.